Hey, this is Jeff Waters from the metal band Annihilator, and you're listening to the one and only Sonic Perspective. Hello, music fans. I'm Samantha Buckman, and I'm here to bring you another interview for Sonic Perspectives. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of speaking with a well-known name in the world of thrash and beyond, none other than Jeff Waters of the legendary and long-standing band Annihilator. How are you doing today? Very good. How are you? I'm doing good. So we're here to talk about some pretty large happenings in the world of Annihilator. But before I get there, I want to talk about an anniversary that came up in 2019. From what I understand, 2019 marked Annihilator's 30-year anniversary. Annihilator is old enough to have moved out, settled down, and started a family. Yet you managed to finish a 43-day tour that spanned over 18 countries. How does it feel to keep up such an intense touring schedule this far into your career? Yeah, it's been, uh, I think, 89, so a little more, yeah, 30 years and a little bit um, since we put out our first record, and I had the band going for five years before that, kind of learning how to play guitar and doing demos and moving from one city to another to find musicians to actually start the band, uh, and then got signed in 88, and 89 was the first record. Um, now we're all the way up to, wow, I'm almost 54 years old, and the uh, 17th studio record's coming out uh, next week, I think, um, or so, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, quite the, let's just say, a strange and interesting and unique career, so to speak. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I live in the UK for the last couple of years, but um, sorry, I was, a, I am a Canadian who lived in Canada his whole life, but um, started the band there. Um, ended up here in the UK, got married, and, and moved over to my wife's country, and uh, built a recording studio. Blah blah blah. I could go on and on. Um, but yeah, it's been a long career. We started out having maybe two or three albums that North America, my home country, Canada and the United States uh, would have known if you're around and in the metal scene back way back from 89 to 1993. Um, you know, on MTV and doing lots of great tours with bands like Testament and doing our own tours. And you heard a lot about us back then, but then we literally dropped off the face of the, uh, let's say the North American continent um, for decades, unless you discovered us on the internet. Um, and we didn't drop off anywhere in Europe. We continued putting out dozen and a half records, <laughs> you know, uh, since the beginning. Um, I've been touring almost every year over in Japan and Europe and, and occasionally dropping into, you know, 70,000 tons of metal boat cruises close to the U.S. or departing from a Fort Lauderdale or Miami um, in the U.S., but never really played back in the States and Canada for uh, forever and uh, basically didn't release actually uh, have a real official release there uh, other than on import for, for a long time and still it, I think this one's just barely getting released too and uh, we're trying to see if we can get down there to tour in, in our own country in 2020 if we can pull it off this year um, but yeah it's, a, it's a definitely an interesting career we finished let me see we finished a two month tour like you mentioned uh, from October to December uh, that just passed and yeah it's uh, a grueling as heck for me as a guitar player and singer now so you have to try to keep in shape and be healthy and make good choices here and get ready for these things. Otherwise, you end up flat in the, flat in the 
four with a heart attack <laughs> to be as blunt as possible. Um, but yeah, it was, it's a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of fun and great career and having a lot of fun. Your schedule is absolutely grueling. You just mentioned all of these tours, especially in the European tour circuit. But as you said, this is your seventh studio album upcoming and it's um, titled Ballistic Sadistic. So, I know that in prior um, interviews, you said that you believe that this is one of your best records, but there's no question it's going to be compared to your earlier works. So independent from the existing Annihilator discography, how would you describe this new album? Uh, well, I mean, it's not some kind of, uh, and Annihilator was, well, okay, it, it was not, it's not really some groundbreaking new type of sound or band or, or anything. Well, you know, for example, when Pantera came out uh, way back, uh, late, early 90s, let's say, I know they were around with albums like Power Metal and that, but when they came out with their heavy stuff, uh, Cowboys from Hell, way back in the day, um, that was groundbreaking. Yes, they had the Sabbath, Metallica, and Van Halen combined, but they, the way they put it together, that was a new sound. That was a new image. That was a new everything. Um, and bands would come out like Priest. That was new. That was, you know, groundbreaking. Metallica came out. That was groundbreaking. Annihilator is not like that. And we've never been, and this new album is not some kind of groundbreaking new sound and style. I, I, Annihilator has been and, and will always be sort of like a celebration of all my favorite heavy metal and thrash metal influences mixed with ballads and, and classical guitar and, and goofy things and a whole bunch of different things in there. So we weren't, we're not part of that group that started a scene. The only thing that we were kind of known originally for was doing some technical and fast and starts and stops with the music on the first couple of records that weren't really being done at that time. And the way I mixed things together wasn't really being done at, at that time. And then it became, it started happening a little bit after that. So, but no, I'd say the new record is, is, I, I don't want to downplay it, but it's, it's just another Annihilator thrash heavy metal celebration record put together uh, from my 50 favorite guitar players and bands, you know? So yeah, I, I'm not trying to cut it down. I'm not trying to put it up. I think this is just our, our style and it's just, it's hard to explain it. I'm not trying to sell it. It's just what I do. And, and hopefully people like it. You did mention. So when you first started, what you were doing was new and exciting, but, Annihilate has become such a big name that these things are almost expected. So how does it feel to kind of move from that cutting edge to just the status quo? Well, I think, again, it depends kind of how, well, I'm just saying it from my experience and my, my opinion and my unique situation with this band is, and my life is, um, you know, a lot of bands that I know and, and heard of and this and that, there, there's some bands that, of course, they maybe the main driving force in the band or one person or two people or whatever, sometimes it's artistic, sometimes it's money, sometimes it's fame, sometimes it's ego, you know, and, it, it, you know, how many more more records can we sell and how much more money can we make? And I, I've always, of course, who wouldn't like to uh, buy a, another car or have these toys or, or have a little extra or, you know, to do what you want, whether it's donated to charity or to help your family or friends or to borrow on stuff that's wasteful. You know, I'm sure nobody's going to turn down 
hard-earned money if it comes in. But my goal wasn't that at the beginning at all. To money and I mean, even for the, put it in perspective, I started the band late teens. Um, it wasn't about cigarettes, beer, and girls, which it became about for a few years after that because I was all about staying in my freaking bedroom eight hours a day playing guitar and trying to learn how to play and write songs and do that I didn't you know cigarettes and beer which came up for four straight years after I had my first album out that was not my goal my I, I didn't care about this stuff it was all about music and money I didn't give a crap about as long as I could eat and, 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 and make you know write songs and get better so when I got my first record deal and things hit it, again it wasn't about I want to be on the cover of guitar magazines I don't uh have a singer that was on the cover of magazines. I want to have these amazing videos and I want to be recognized everywhere and millions of records or I want to be the best band out there. It was completely none of that. I just wanted to get a record deal and fit in to a category of music that I loved and be a part of that. Even if it wasn't number one or selling lots, I just wanted to get in there. And so it was more of an artistic um, drive and over the years, with the success we've had overseas, uh, financially and you know playing big places and selling shirts and doing all the stuff we're doing, it all became about making enough money, taking care of business to make enough money to survive, to do the, I can pay my guys more money than I hire in my band, or I can get a better piece of studio equipment or some more guitars or, you know, uh, it wasn't about fame and fortune. It was just about surviving, being able to artistically be able to do what I want. And uh, so that's really where I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I'm at a certain level where a lot of people might not know me or the band, I don't care. I'm just, I, my fans know, and I'm not out there trying to grab more fans. It's just like, hey, here's my record, and I really hope you like it. <laughs> so this, you would say that this is still very much a project of love and passion. Yeah, this is number one, yeah. I mean, it's a business, too. In music business, you have to take care of your business as a band member or a band uh, in order to survive if you want to keep doing this for, for a living. Um, but it's it's still, the music's what I love. And, you know, the other side of that is, uh, I guess a lot of, too, a lot of fans or people might think that, um, well, yeah, but maybe some of your records weren't good or we didn't like the singer or we didn't like it when you sing or we didn't like that album or this style. But I think all of our favorite bands that we know of, like mine, for example, I've got all the CDs and from ACDC to Slayer to Cannibal Corpse to Guns N' Roses to anything. And in those bands where they have more than one or two albums, um, I don't listen to all the records. I, I love the bands and I have my favorites, but there's some, some records I have here that I don't listen to. Um, but I'll listen to the other ones that I like by the same band. And it's, that's because when you're a musician, you might try hard all the time to write good songs and good albums, but sometimes it just doesn't all come together and it doesn't work. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that's the goal. As long as you're honest and you love what you're doing and you take care of the business side so you can continue, uh, man, you got a, you got a fun life. Speaking of things all coming together, the first single for the album, I Am Warfare, was released in October as the first taste of the album. Do you feel that this song is representative of the atmosphere of the album? No, that was, I mean, that one we called as a band, we called that the Slayer-esque tune. That had a little vibe of uh, sort of the power of a slower Slayer song. And um, there was the, the main chorus riff definitely has some Slayer influence in it. And that was kind of 
in a sense, my little tribute, personal tribute to uh, my favorite band, which is two bands. It's Van Halen and Slayer. Those are that, if I had to give a top five of my favorite bands in my life, it would be Slayer tied with Van Halen. And two completely different bands and two different complete reasons why I like those bands. Um, and that was, I guess, you know, knowing that Slayer were on their final final run and, you know, seeing them in, in Montreal, Canada and seeing them in, um, I think it was called Laval, Canada, seeing them in Newcastle here over in England and seeing them on some of the shows, saying goodbye, you know, that kind of stuff. It was uh, just fitting that I sort of, I just felt I wanted to put that out first. And it threw a lot of people off because they're like, okay, this is an interesting song that's kind of heavy, but where's the real standout stuff? And um, then I released a song called Psycho Ward and, um, oh, what was the other one? Um, oh, can't remember. Uh, Arm to the Teeth. So Psycho Ward came out and then Arm to the Teeth and people were like, okay, there we go. That's what we want. But I kind of, I think those, the two recent songs I mentioned that were released were more of the, the old school Annihilator and the, the first one, Arm to the Blind uh, Warfare, was more of a dark, slayery kind of tribute vibe, you know what I mean? Yeah, and so speaking of Psycho Ward, you guys kind of paid homage to Rush in that song, and I never figured that Rush was a musical influence for you. Could you elaborate how a little bit more on yeah. how it played a role in your musical evolution? Yeah, there's some albums like uh, we have called Carnival Diablos is one, and there's one called King of the Kill. Um, I'm thinking there's another one too. And the song Psycho Ward, um, where I sort of break, uh, we say break it down, I guess that's the funny way of saying it, where there's a section usually in the middle. Uh, but this is more of a, a melodic thing that it's it's almost like the police the band, the police and rush, um, rush were influenced by the band, the police, um, and uh, self admittedly, like rush admitted way back that that was their, one of their main influences. And I was influenced being Canadian by rush because they were, they were our national heroes. They, they didn't, they were like, uh, not just a band. They were part of Canadian culture. Um, there's three bands there. I'm sure there's more, but the three that stand out were a sort of Canada only band that most people only knew them if they were in Canada, from Canada, uh, a band called Tragically Hip, uh, and Brian Adams and, uh, you know, Rush. Those were part of the fabric of Canada. It was, if you had to send a, you know, a little thing about Canada off into space with the top 100 things, you got to mention those three bands. <laughs> so, uh, um, so I don't know. I think I always had that Rush vibe in there, but I wasn't so much of a, a prog player. I wasn't more into that prog kind of music. Um, I was more into the hard rock and heavy metal stuff, you know. But being Canadian and, and loving Rush, you know, it sneaks into your music once in a while. So you've mentioned a few of your musical influences so far, especially as they tie into this album. What would you see as the unifying theme or concept really driving Ballistic Sadistic? Uh, I think musically speaking, uh, most of the songs, I'm going to guess eight or nine out of uh, ten of the ten songs, the music is coming from uh, a personal issue that I experienced in 2019 for most of the year. And it was uh, something personal and private. There was basically, there was a person that was threatening the, oh, this sounds like a big way of describing it, but it was actually, it sounds dramatic, but it, the person, without describing what was happening, the person was threatening the mental health 
well-being of my family, my kids and, and wife and myself by making threats and and scaring us, uh, scaring all of us a little bit. But whatever, this person didn't live here. It was just somebody that my wife knew from the past. And uh, police and court were involved and, and things like that. So I, I became uh, sort of, my role became a kind of a protector. And I was I had a lot of anger, a lot of anger for what this person had done and was doing to this family. And once that was resolved, I was left with a year's worth of stress and, and having your guard up and being tense. Um, and you got to release that somehow. And I'm not someone who goes to the gym every day and works out. I'm not someone who, uh, and I don't turn to alcohol or drugs and stuff. And, um, you know, my way of releasing anything that's traumatic or stressful or anger is not uh, taking it out on the family or a bottle or stuff. It's really going by myself into my studio and saying, F the world and writing a riff. And that's where, you know, and then lyrically you can get more out in the lyrics as well, which some of it came out kind of specific to my experience in in 2019 with that person and family crisis and some of it was just general, but I could tell the vibe was still and the anger was there. Um, and that's it. When the record was done, it was almost like I was healed. I was, uh, it was like, it's out of me. It's out of my system. I'm all good now. I'm back to the sanity is back and calm and relaxing. And that's kind of how I've dealt with a lot of things in my life that might have been otherwise uh, damaging. Um, you know, some people meditate. Some people take care of their health with going to the gym. Some people do this and that. Well, I'm an artist, so I, I, I make music music and I deal with stuff and forget about stuff to the music. Woo, that was well done. I don't think I've said it that well ever. <laughs> well, it was very well said and it takes so much strength to put yourself out there as an artist, especially to such a large fan base. Do you ever have difficulty reliving some of these very personal experiences when performing your music or being or talking about it? No, I think you maybe talking about it occasionally, yeah. Like, it's uncomfortable to mention that I went through some kind of family trauma in 2019, and that's why I don't like really being specific, but um, that's just part of life, talking about a song, um, and I could refuse to talk about it, but what, that's silly. It's, it's, it's something I created, and if it had something to do with it, spawned from some shitty times, then that's life, right? But um, I think once you get it out of your system, hey... You know, in in a sense, the the negative stuff that happened to us uh, gave me a better record. So there's a positive spin-off to an otherwise really crappy situation uh, for four of us. And uh, yeah, in return, here we go. I'm putting a record out in overseas in Europe, I think. And that, this is not meant to, to show off. It's just meant to show you how you can turn something into something different. I think a label messaged me a couple of days ago and said, we got a number two album on uh, in Germany on, on Amazon. And you think, oh, Amazon, that's, you know, that's for me as an old school person, uh, you know, I'd rather hear on the chart. Or on the in the in the stores your CDs selling, but I guess it's a big deal to be number two on Amazon in Germany with it when there's that many million people there. Um, so you know, I think that unique uh, phone call saying that, hey, dude, you're number two. <laughs> your record's number two. Um, that's a direct result from the inspiration I got from really crappy times for me and my family for 2019. So in a way, I got to credit this uh, you know little bit of success before the album is out uh, because of that person and, the, and those times. It's 
so interesting hearing just how much of yourself that you're pouring into this project. And from what I've understood, Annihilator has always been a Jeff Waters project. But this album seems to be one where you've truly taken the weight of it all on your shoulders, both in concept and in production. In 2015, you reprised your role as vocalist and took the lead on the production of this album. What impact do you feel that adding these roles has had on your performance? Has it given you more control? Well, right from the beginning, the, the history of Annihilator, which is not known to most people be, uh, in North America, because if you're my age you, you, and into metal, you might have, uh, in this type of you know thrash metal kind of thing or heavier heavy metal, uh, you would have known who we were from 89 to 91 in the States and maybe to 93. It's kind of almost been like a solo project from the beginning and really, you know, behind the scenes with the business stuff and writing and stuff, there has been, of course, other musicians co-writing and um, in some ways involved in other things, mostly just in co-writing some songs. But generally, uh, I guess you could look at the whole catalog and go, I've written, vastly written the majority of the lyrics and the the drumming even and, and guitar bass lines. I played bass on, I think, every song on every studio album except maybe two or three songs in total. So I've always kind of had it as a solo project, but the labels would, of course, market it more as a, uh, and put it out there as more of a band because, as they said, solo projects don't sell. It's, it's a band that sells. So Annihilator was always called a band and, I mean, and it kind of is. It's half a band because in the studio and the behind the scenes, it's more of my solo project. And when we go on tour, as you know, for example, just pop up something on YouTube if you're not used to this band or never heard of us or whatever. Just pop Annihilator Athens 2019 or Annihilator Moscow 2019 or something on YouTube. And you can see what looks like a band um, because I've got musicians in the band now I've stuck with for quite a while for many years but uh, I, I did a huge turnover in the, in the last 25 years of musicians not the last five years but the, the first 25 where on tour I would hire everybody to, to play and even in the studio hire drummers and, and that uh, but on tour it does look more like a band because we're, it's not the Jet Waters project it's a band and in fact some lineups would have a, a frontman singer that was I'd stand in the back and let the frontman go out and and so to speak, steal the show because it, that's what they were wanted to do and they loved it. And I was like, hey, fine, I just want to play guitar. Um, but since I've been singing, that adds another role. I've, I've had my own recording studio, uh, four different recording studios, three in Canada and one here now in, in, in the UK. Um, and I will, I've always been from the beginning uh, inclined to be in a studio and learn more and more about engineering and mixing and mastering and, and producing and that. So, hey, if you don't have a real job and you got 35 years where you can be involved in music and that uh, you can learn a lot of things and you can do a lot of things. And, and, and uh, the studio is my second career hobby. Uh, it's just as important and just as time consuming as playing with an eyeliner. Uh, being in the studios is, you know, the other half of it. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you've learned in terms of production and mixing and mastering? Because I'm sure that most people just think of you as, you know, a guitarist and a vocalist. What do you do behind the scenes and what's influenced and inspired you there? Uh, you know, I think when I started out, 
making uh, in the mid '80s, making a couple of demos that got the band signed. Um, there was these cassette tapes that you would record on, and they the things were called four tracks and uh, four track machines, and you could record four different takes or instruments on those. And then you'd run out. Of course, you'd run out of tracks if you wanted to do backing vocals and solos. So you'd have to do what they call bouncing the tracks and, and all that stuff. And the, the Beatles, I guess, uh, George Martin and the Beatles were the first. Uh, you know, I think I can't remember who invented Les Paul. I'm not sure who invented the multi-track, but uh, it was very basic uh, engineering I was learning when I was doing demos, and that information, or sorry, that that what I learned and how, what I learned then, recording on those little cassette things, and at the time with no internet, I was buying every single magazine to do with recording in studios, and there was, there was 20 of them out there at that time, and it was not about since sampling and computer music, it was all about analog recording. Everybody was doing things similar on a special tape machines and that. So it was a very uh, big art form back then too. Um, I would buy it and, and then I would eventually get signed and went into some good studios, some of the best studios in the world at one point. And very quickly on my fourth album, when I finally made a, a good chunk of money, I essentially, I bought a house and built a recording studio. And that was in 94. That was uh, my first studio and, and that was it since 94 to, to the year 2020 um, I've had a studio so and in the studio you learn to learn all about the equipment and you, you use it practically with other bands and you do your own albums and you just you either hate it or you love it <laughs> and I love it so it's a lot of fun would you primarily how would you identify yourself as an artist if someone said what do you do would you say that you're a guitarist a vocalist a producer guitar yeah the first thing you say I play guitar in a band in a metal band so that's how I kind of, if I'm asked, what do you do for a living? I go, I play guitar in a metal band. And then you can usually, with most people, you see the eyes roll and they're thinking, okay, this guy's, uh, he's a musician. And, you know, you get the stereotypical <laughs> kind of answer from most people. But I'm kind of lucky in the sense that, you know, I, I mostly, I don't, you know, don't socialize too much, but, you know, when your hobby and your job is in music and you get to tour with a lot of great bands over the decades and meet them and, and that you, you end up having friends that are in the music business. So you, you don't, you don't really hang out much with people that are outside of what you kind of do, you know, so they, they all know about you and you know about them. And, and, and that's funny because then you, you don't really have that. You don't have to sit there and, and just go, do I need to explain to this person that if you're 53 and you've had your studio and 17 records that you must know something about, business. You must have some kind of bank account, you know, because a lot of people look at you and think, oh, must be drugs, alcohol, and broke, and a womanizer. You know, that's pretty well where you, where you usually get stereotypically. It's ridiculous. Well, and that's not fair to you. You're running a business and a band that has had international acclaim for years, decades even. Yeah, but it's not actually, I brought it up there, but it's not actually something I ever think about or it almost never comes up. It, it only would come up if you're, you know, if you, like I have a 24-year-old son, but when he was younger, uh, as soon as some parents found out that, oh, that guy's in a heavy metal band and they, they you know, at the time, my, my son's 24 now, but if you go back to, uh, you know, tw what, tw 19, 20 years ago, when he was four or five years old, 
and you, you go to the school in the daytime, they think, okay, he must not have a job. He's got long hair at the time, and he's a, he's a heavy metal musician, you know. So you would get, literally, parents would either look at you. It would be funny. It was actually funny. They'd look at you like, you know, drugs, alcohol, womanizer, broke. Or they'd look at, uh, you know, or they'd look at you and think, oh, cool, I wish I could do that. <laughs> you know, it's like you, you kind of had both, the best of both in that one. But, uh, it's yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting life, right? And then... then when people discover that you're not what they think you are, uh, you know, they're quite shocked. They're quite shocked about that. Even just from a few minutes of conversation, I can just tell how important your family is to you. You're a husband, father, and a stepfather, so you have a full life to pursue outside of Annihilator's legacy. How is life off the big stage, especially with the move that you've made? Yeah, it's great. I mean, again, if you take 24 hours in the daytime, and you say, okay, I may be married and I may have kids and I have a job playing in a band and I have a recording studio. You would think that's an extremely busy, busy life. And to some people, oh yeah, it's unbelievably busy. At the same time, uh, I make time for the wife and the kids and the music and the studio. And the way you do it is sometimes you can treat this as a nine to five job and you make sure that you shut it all off at five and you, you, you do what quote normal people would do in normal relationships. Uh, but then you also sort of stack it up where, well, I just went on a two month tour and I was very busy two weeks before the tour rehearsing with my band and they were getting all my attention. I was away for two months and then, you know, a couple of weeks before the rehearsals, I had to set up a lot of things. So that's three months months where I'm kind of not all there. I'm not really there for the family, even physically I'm there for a few weeks, but, but so I have the opportunity though to, when I'm done the tour to stay home and do nothing, but be family guy. <laughs> right? Um, and that's what I've done. I took the December off, didn't do any music and I spent a good solid month with my family. So, you know, and with social media now or with, with, you know, uh, Facebook, uh, and you know, you can video your, your wife and kids anytime. And, and, you know, with flights, sometimes, uh, you know, they can fly in or meet you at a show in London or, or, or wherever. My wife came down as well to Athens to see me. So it's not like a terrible, terrible thing. Where it would be terrible, it would be if I was getting drunk all the time and, and not giving a damn and not making the time for family as well. Um, but I think, you know, it gives you the inspiration to, uh, you know, if you, you have good family life, it gives you inspiration for music. And if you, uh, your music's going well, then it gives you good family life and, and time for your family. Do you feel that it's like a switch that you flip on or off? Like, oh, I'm a family man or I'm a musician today? Or is it something that's always fluid and dynamic? Yeah, when you're writing a record and recording, you're, you're, you really are absent, you know, in a sense. And no matter how you try to shut it off at 5 o'clock uh, in the afternoon and say, job's done, you try hard to say, okay, walk back from the studio, walk into the house, hi, kids, hi, wife, everything's, you know. But in your brain, until you get there, the next morning back into the studio, you are fighting the riff you were writing or what can I do with this riff or what, uh, you know, what, you know, things are going through your head. And that's just, that's the, the life of uh, the, this type of artist. You know, that's just the way it works for some musicians and painters and artists and all that stuff. Um, you try and you try to do it, but you know, people know that you're not there, but then that's the cool thing. Once the touring thing or once your, your thing is done, now you do the opposite. You just don't even think about the music you just don't touch a guitar you don't do anything you just you know you focus on something totally different 
hey, look, uh, there are a lot of successful marriages and, and family things with, with military personnel. Uh, you hear about the, you know, military personnel and entertainers and movie stars and rock stars and all that having divorces and high divorce rates, but you also see a lot of them with uh, military people sometimes go out on a military, uh, a submarine, nuclear sub for four months at a time, and yet they still stay together and have a family. And so it can be done. You just have to really prioritize things. And, you know, if you're going out drinking with your buddies or you're doing this and that, you're uh, you're not really prioritizing things <laughs> like you should if you're on a nuclear sub for four months. Um, same with me. If I went out with my buddies to clubs and stuff like that, it's kind of like not that time of my life. It's the wrong thing. It sounds like you've really fought to find balance between your family, your career, and even within your music. And so thank you for sharing that. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about the upcoming album? Any future projects that you have? Yeah, no future projects. No, uh, right now we're just recovering from that two-month tour and the holidays, and we're back at uh, the album release now. And now it's in the next few weeks. It's you know the release, but also uh, working on where we're going to play, where we're going to do shows, and you know endorsing things with a, a guitar company and all these little and big things that we're planning and, and just that are normal to, to do and they're exciting and they're fun. And, um, yeah, we get that on our Facebook page or website, we'll, we'll announce all the stuff as they get sorted out in the next month. And, uh, I just hope that, uh, anybody who's listening to this, um, just gives us a shot and has a listen. If you haven't heard of us, then, uh, well, at least we got the internet. You can find out a little bit about it. Give it a shot. You have to listen. There's lots of great bands out there. So if you don't like my band, then go find another one. <laughs> As someone that's listened to the album and really enjoys it, I would definitely recommend the same. It's a stunning album, and I can't wait for it to come out. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, Jeff, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with you, and I wish you all the best on your upcoming release. And thanks again for your time. Great. Thank you, and have a great time, and I appreciate the interest. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Talk to you again. Maybe I'll see you sometime. Thanks. Definitely. Bye-bye. <laughs> And that was Jeff Waters from Annihilator, discussing their upcoming album, Ballistic Sadistic, which will be released on January 24th. Be sure to follow Sonic Perspectives on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll be closing with a single from Ballistic Sadistic, This is Psycho Wars. (laughs) 